have you not read? That's one of the things that when Jesus is with, in disputes with Pharisees or other religious leaders, uh, one of the things that he often says, have, have you not read? As if to say, like if you, if you had read... If you had read the Bible, if you had listened to the Bible being read in synagogue, if you had read the Bible, if you had studied, if you were the Bible scholars that you think of yourselves as, then you'd know. You would know who I am. You would know who Jesus Christ is. You would know that Jesus is the promised King of God. He is the Christ. But they had neglected God's word. They had neglected to read God's word or to read it with the appropriate attitude, ready to submit to what God's word had said. And so Jesus says, have you not read, if you had read, if you had read what the scriptures say about me, you'd be ready to accept me. You'd be ready to acknowledge me. You'd be ready to submit to me. You would be ready to see me as your king and trust in me for your salvation. But they didn't. They rejected Jesus Christ. That's a dangerous thing to neglect God's word. To, to, to not hear it, to not read it, to not think about it, to not take it, and, and not only reading it or hearing it, but then obey it. It is a, a perilous, dangerous thing to neglect God's word. What I hope you'll see today is what it looks like when you obey God's word, when you give attention to God's word, when you listen for, for God, and when you obey God's commands. And you also see what happens when you neglect God's word, when you neglect to devote yourself to God's word and to obey God's word. And what I hope you'll do is that you will commit yourself, that you will be renewed in zeal for God's word and more than that, that you will put your hope in the one who perfectly obeyed God's word, Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be in 2 Samuel 5. 2 Samuel 5. We're going to start in verse 13. 2 Samuel 5, verse 13. And there really, there's not exactly three points today. It's just really three cycles of the same thing. Success with hints of problems. Success with hints of problems. So cycle one starts with verses 13 through 16. 2 Samuel 5, verses 13 through 16. 2 Samuel 5, verses 13 through 16, this is what it says. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. After he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Uh, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. So this is, the, this is the tail end of chapters 5 and 6 make this kind of Jerusalem sandwich. So it's, it's David taking Jerusalem, then it's some, uh, there's a battle sequence in the middle, and then there is more Jerusalem. And this is the tail end of the first part of the Jerusalem sandwich, okay? So there's, there were great things that David had done. He had gone to battle in Jerusalem, and he had uh, driven out the Jebusites, this last of, of the peoples who were, were living in, in this land that God had promised to the Israelites. And so he has gone, and he's defeated them, and he's taken Jerusalem, and he's now centered his capital in Jerusalem where, where God is going to dwell, where the king is going to dwell. And this is, this is good news. David is, David is a pattern of the rule of God's king. One of the things you have to remember with David, though, is that David is this pattern of 
God's king over God's people. He is not the fulfillment of that pattern. The fulfillment of that pattern is a perfect king. David's not him. What we see in David is is we see a man who is the pattern of God's rule over God's people, God's king ruling over and blessing God's people. We also see that he is a sinner, that he is someone who disobeys God's word and neglects God's word and suffers the consequences of neglecting God's word, not only himself, but also all the people. And then we see in David what it looks like for someone to repent to repent with true repentance, not just regret over facing the consequences uh, for the wrongdoing, but real repentance toward God and trusting in God for forgiveness. That's what we see in David. Well, here there are hints of problems with David. So probably kind of obvious to you. He's got too many wives. It's, it's, it's more than that, though. It's more serious than that. Now, we should know from the beginning of the Bible that God's pattern from the beginning was one man and one woman. And the first man to take multiple wives is a really evil man named Lamech. We know from the beginning of the Bible that, that this is not the way that God wants it to be. This has not been God's pattern from the beginning. But more than that, David ought to know. See, it's one thing to, to do wrong when you don't know. It is legitimately wrong to do wrong even when you don't know it's wrong. But David is somebody who is doing wrong when he ought to have known better, when he ought to have known what God's word said. I want you to turn in your Bibles or or you can listen carefully to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. Strangely enough, this is one of my favorite passages in all the Bible, and maybe you'll see why. I'm not sure, but Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. This is Moses speaking to the people of Israel about, number one, they are definitely going to go into the land. And when they get in the land, they are going to choose a king. It was God's plan from the very beginning that there would be a king over Israel. And this is the kind of king that you should choose, and this is what he ought to do, and this is what he ought not to do. Starting in verse 14, Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20, it says, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I shall set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you. Who is not your brother? Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write... For himself in a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priest. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. There's always this expectation for a king. What's the king supposed to be like? 
supposed to be a, a native Israelite, so he's one, of, he's one of God's people. From the very beginning, it was going to be uh, David. God made promises to, to Abraham in, in uh, Genesis 17. Kings are going to come from you. This is the king, the king of Israel. This is what God had planned. He's going to be, be a native Israelite. He's going to rule over God's people. Only he must not acquire many horses. When you read horses like that in the Bible, think tanks. Not too much military power. Must it, it must not go to Egypt to get more horses, so don't make treaties. Don't, don't be, try to be diplomatic and seek the protection of some other kingdom. Instead, trust God that God is going to protect the kingdom. Uh, don't acquire too much gold for yourself. Do not, do not live in exceeding luxury. And he says, do not take many wives. What's David doing in Second Samuel 5? He's taking many wives for himself. And, and there's a reason why I read verses 18 through 20 of Deuteronomy 17. He's supposed to take a copy of God's law and write it out by hand for himself, legibly to be approved by the Levitical priest so that he can read it all the days of his life and know what God's law says, know what God's word says. You think about it, in Israel, there is going to be the every seven-year reading of the law. There is supposed to be the teaching of the fathers to the sons and to the children of the law. Every day, all the time talking about it, the king himself is supposed to have his very own handwritten copy that he's going to read all the days of his life. The, the king can't outsource all the, all the God word stuff. He can't outsource those things to the priests or the Levites or the prophets. He can't say, hey, I didn't know about those things. No, he's supposed to take God's law, write it out by hand for himself beating it into his mind so that he knows it so that he does not depart from it to the right or to the left so so he can't fall off one way he can't fall off the other he's got to be devoted to God's word David doesn't do that I think we see hints in verses 13 through 16 that David is neglecting God's word And it is a dangerous, perilous thing to neglect God's word. Has there ever been a society in any place, in any time, that has neglected God's word more than our own? You you have pastors of some churches, so sad. They have access to God's word. They have an embarrassment of riches, of, of commentaries and biblical helps. And instead of preaching God's word, they preach their own ideas. There are Bible preaching churches. And yet so often people neglect to attend to the hearing of God's word. Even when, you, even when people come to hear God's word, they don't come ready to hear there's one famous author who said that when people come to, come, to, uh, come to church, they ought not get coffee. They ought to put on hard hats. They ought to put on helmets and strap on seat belts because you're about to hear the word of God. We have access to, you can get a copy of God's word relatively inexpensively at the local books a million. You can order it off Amazon. You can go to Walmart and buy a very decent Bible. 
and yet so few read it with any kind of intensity or devotion. Most people probably have multiple copies around and yet neglect to read it. And when we read it, it is never complete until we have thought about it, until we have considered it, till we have pondered it, till we have meditated on God's word so that it fills our hearts and our minds. And don't, rem- don't forget what James says. We must not only be hearers of God's word, but doers of God's word. It is so dangerous to neglect God's word. And you see the hint in David's life of what's going to happen. You look at verse 14. 14 says, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon. So there are these sons. This is a sign in, in one sense. This is a sign of David's fruitfulness. This is good news. But who's their mother? Probably recognize at least one of those names, Solomon. Who's his mother? That's Bathsheba. Here's, here's one of the things I want you to recognize. Later on, if you know the story of David, you're going to know that later on he is become, going to be a, an adulterer and a murderer. And not only that, but he is going to create a conspiracy to cover up his adultery and his murder. That didn't start when he saw Bathsheba bathing on the housetop. That started when he neglected God's word and started to take on more and more power to himself, more and more privilege to himself. Hey, this is, this is a culturally accepted thing that you would have multiple, si- multiple wives. It's culturally accepted that David would have multiple wives as the king of Israel, as a king in general. That it is culturally accepted doesn't mean anything. It's against God's word. He should have known it. He didn't, he didn't listen to it. He didn't obey it. And it's going to lead, giving in to this lust. One day, when you, are, when you are feeding this small little thing that is in your heart of lust, when you are feeding it over and over again, one day it grows up to be a dragon ready to devour you. And that's what happened to Dave. And he suffered the consequences of it his entire life. I want, you to, I want you to learn to be devoted to God's word. And I want you to learn, I want you to understand now. It is so much better to be taught, to be instructed, and to understand than it is to stray and be disciplined and to suffer the rod of correction. Because God, God as, as we saw just this past month, God, God does discipline those who are his. You don't have to suffer the pain of discipline. Not corrective discipline. You can listen to instruction and take it seriously. I think we need to take seriously God's word. Be ready to hear it. Meditate on it and obey it. Do what it says. Well, that is the, that is the end of that cycle. So that cycle of success, David, David goes in and takes Jerusalem but then there are these hints of problems. Now we move into the second cycle. We're going to start in verse 17, and we'll read into chapter 6. This is what it says. 2 Samuel five seventeen says, When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. 
But David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Therefore the name of the place is called Baal-perazim. And the Philistines left their idols there, and David and his men carried them away. And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come up against them, come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him. And struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called the name of the Lord of hosts, called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio went before the ark. Well, the Philistines are this people who moved into the coastlands, who had given the nation of Israel trouble for years, decades, centuries. But in chapter 3, Abner had said, hey, David is going to be the one who is going to save the people from the Philistines. And that's what David had been doing, and this is what David does right here. He goes out. He hears that the, the Philistines are coming in. They're coming into the land. It says that they're spreading out. Probably means they're going out and raiding parties. So what they would typically do is, hey, they wait for the harvest. Uh, they wait till the Israelites plant. And they, they work the fields all, all, all summer long. And then at harvest time, the Philistines come and steal it all. That's what they're doing. Well, David has to protect the people. So he goes out to this stronghold. He goes out to meet them. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that David has done so often that he does here. He inquires of the Lord. So this is where he goes to the priest. Uh, he inquires of the priest. The priest asks God a question using what's called the Urim. Uh, that is these, these stones that would give, God, uh, give God's answer to David. And so he inquires, hey, shall I go up? And God says, yes. Will you give them into my hand? Yes, I'm going to give them into your hand. Go up. And David does. David goes out and he, he defeats them. And he, he clears out the whole region so that there's safety in the land. And, and don't miss this. At the end, David goes and the, the Philistines flee so quickly that they leave behind their idols. Now, this is a reversal of what had happened in 1 Samuel 4. Then the people of God, Israel, had taken the ark and they had taken it into battle with them, thinking that, hey, if we've got the ark with us, this is like a, a magical talisman that God can't be defeated and we're definitely going to win. Well, ends up that the Israelites, by this, uh, this false way of thinking, they actually lose the ark. And the ark goes into to the Philistines' hands. Now, God strikes down the Philistines with the plague until the Philistines are ready to give it back. Uh, but anyway, this is, this is actually the reverse of what had happened here the Philistines run away. They brought their idols into battle with them thinking, hey, our idols are going to help us defeat the Israelites. False gods don't help. There's no reason to fear false gods. 
David goes and takes their idols, and guess what? There's no plague among Israel. No problem in in Israel because David took their idols. But it's because the Philistine idols are false gods. They they don't don't have anything to do. They don't have any. They are in no way challenging to David or to the God of Israel. Again, there's another battle. David goes out. This time, it's a little bit different. Uh, He asks God, shall I go up? He says, don't go up the same way you did before. Instead, come around this way. And not only that, but when you hear the, the, the marching in the trees, then, then that's when you go out. So not only is God directing David to attack, but he is directing strategy and timing. Like, I want, I want you to go to this place at this time, and I want you to attack from, from here and at this time, and, and this is how you're going to win. And David does, and, and David defeats them. One of the places is called uh, Baal-Perazim. That is the place where God, God flooded them, where God broke out, and it's like the, like the dam of God broke, and all the water flooded out and destroyed the Philistines. And you see there at the end of chapter 5, it says, And David did as the Lord commanded him. And struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. David, David keeps obeying the Lord's commands. And what happens when the king obeys the Lord's commands? Well, there's peace for God's people. Like from, from the north to the south, from the east to the west, like the people are at peace. This is, this is what the, the obedience of the king brings for God's people. It is peace and righteousness and justice. No more, no more people coming in to steal Instead, there's peace and righteousness. I think it's really helpful to read Samuel and Kings against the background of the book of Judges. What happens in the book of Judges is the people sin. When the people sin and turn away from God, God sends another nation in to to discipline them and to, to bring them back to repentance. And then, then when they repent, God raises up another judge to save them. And, and, but, it, but continually, it is, the, it is the people as a whole. What you see shift when you get into Samuel and Kings is it's no longer about what the people do. It's about what the king does. If you have a good king, everything goes well for the people. If you have a bad king, everything goes badly for the people. This is the structure of salvation. Because what do we have in Jesus Christ? We have a king who has done well, who has done good who has done righteousness, who has obeyed perfectly. He has done everything that God commanded him to do. And when we are in Christ, we receive all the benefits. We receive all the, all the blessings of peace and righteousness that, that Jesus gives. We've been singing Christmas songs about the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why, why are we singing about joy Because with the coming of the king, there is joy and peace and righteousness under the rule of Jesus Christ. That's what we ought to be expecting and hoping for and trusting in. That's what Jesus Christ brings for us. But you'll notice I read on into chapter 6. Because David gathers together his troops for one battle against the Philistines. He gathers together his troops for one battle, uh, another battle against the Philistines. Then gathers his troops again. And this time it still kind of has this, this tinge of, of the ark in there, talking about the ark. So the, the idols kind of hint at the ark in chapter 5. And then we're moving into the ark of God. And then the ark of God was this box. 
You don't think of a box having much to do with God, but this is a box that God had ordained that it would contain the law in it, and it would contain reminders of what God had done to free the Israelites. And it was said in some places to be God's footstool. That is, God, a, a picture or a representation of God's presence among his people. So this ark is David says, hey, I'm in Jerusalem. I want the ark in Jerusalem with me. I want to live in the presence of God. That's a good thing. It's a good thing to want to live in the presence of God. There's some things that are wrong. Over and over again in the Bible, multiple places in the law, the law that David was supposed to copy out by hand and read and know by heart so that he would be careful not to turn to the left or to the right, but to know God's word. In that same law, it says that hey, here's how you carry the ark. It's got rings on the side. You put poles in, and these are the special people who are supposed to carry it. It's going to be the Levites, especially the, 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 uh, the clan of the Kohathites, and they're going to they're carry the ark. What's David doing? David, David puts it on a, on a new cart. It doesn't matter that it's a new cart. They're, they're celebrating. They're singing. They're, they're jumping. They're leaping. The ark is coming to Jerusalem. Put it on a new cart. You got, got a, a high-o probably up in the front. He's, he's guiding the, the oxen at the front. You got, you got Uzzah in the back, and he's making sure that the, the ark, everything's safe and nobody comes too close to the ark. And, and, and they're, they're, doing, they're, they're trying to take care of everything. Except they're not obeying God's word. Now look at what they're doing. Now they are, they are pious. They are religious. They are joyful. It is, it is directed toward the Lord. Now, I think a lot of people think that any kind of sincere, pious, religious, joyful action pointed in God's direction is okay. Except, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that we should be, there has to be a sober-mindedness about our devotion to God. Like the way Peter says it, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind right. So my football coach used to say, you need to get your mind right tonight. So you have to get serious. You need, to, you need to think seriously about what God's word says. You can't, you, it is not okay to make up things and, and however you think they ought to be done or however you feel they ought to be done. Instead, you must devote yourself with a serious-minded devotion to God's word to do what it says. Not something else. Not what you think is cool. Not what you think is, would, would be effective. Instead, you have to do what the Bible says. And look at the way that David is doing it. David puts it on a cart. Do you know how the Philistines, after they had been struck with a plague, after their God had his, uh, after their little idol had his head broken off and his hands broken off? You know how, how God had gone in in the form of the ark and completely and de devastated, begun to devastate the Philistine society? Do you know how they had sent it back to Israel, they put it on a cart. David had just defeated the Philistines, and now he's carrying the ark the way a Philistine would carry the ark. These, these are, don't you think these are just petty little details? They are not. The Bible does not have any petty little details. It is God's word in every single word that it has in it. It is the plenary, that means full, 
verbal, every word, revelation of God. It is ours to know God. If we neglect it, we neglect it at our peril. Look what happens next. Let's read verses five, start with verse 5 in chapter 6. It says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there because, beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. You see what happens here? So, so when David had obeyed God's command, God broke out. That's that word perez. See that in, in chapter 5 and in chapter 6? God broke out against the Philistines, against God's enemies, against the enemies of the people of God. David disobeys God's word, and God's anger breaks out against David. Uzzah is probably there in the back. Oxen stumble. Uzzah probably thinks, hey, this is, this is what I'm here for. Puts out his hand. And, you know, it's probably more David's fault than Uzzah's. But the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah because he did not obey God's commands. The presence of God, because God is holy, is dangerous and perilous. People die in the presence of God. My, my kids still laugh about it sometimes because this is the way explaining the holiness of God. So you got holy you got holy things, you got clean things, you have unclean things. You have clean in contact with the holy, and you have, have clean that come in, can come in contact with unclean. But when the unclean, when the impure comes in contact with the holy, boom. That's what happens. We must learn to fear God, to revere him. To be afraid to not know what his word says. To be afraid not to obey what he says. God is dangerous. Let us, let, don't, let, let's be careful to obey what he says. So that we are not struck down. You see David's reaction there. David's angry. God, God how, how can God be for me now when he does these kinds of things? How can I know that God, God has established my kingdom, but how am I know, going to know that he establishes my kingdom when, when he does these kinds of things? And he's, and he's afraid of God. He says, hey, let's, 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 put, let's put the ark of God over on the side burner for a little while. I can't, I can't have the presence of God in, in my presence anymore. So he moves it over to Obed-Edom's house. So then we move into the third cycle. The third cycle of, of success with hints of trouble. Pick up in verse 12. 
says, And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a, a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his household to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Well, David hears about what's happening at Obed-Edom's house. The ark of God is at Obed-Edom's house, and God is blessing Obed-Edom. That this is God's presence. God's, God's presence among his people blesses them. It's probably the, the kinds of blessing that, that, in this case, that Deuteronomy talks about, where they, he's having fruitful fields and he's having many children. And, and later on, it's, it's, it's recorded that Obed-Edom had eight sons. Uh, and by the time his eight sons are done having children, he has 60-plus men in his household who are working for him. It's blessing. God is being fruitful. He not only provided for Obed-Edom, gave him children, gave him, gave him grandchildren, gave him all the things to, to provide for all these, all these people. God's blessing him. And David hears about that. He's like, I want, I want that in my house. I want that in my city. I want Obed-Edom. I mean, I want Obed-Edom to be blessed. But the king needs to be blessed, and the king's blessed. Everybody be blessed. So let's, get the, let's get the ark in Jerusalem. And so this time, he does it right. You can see that they are carrying it. They are bearing it. They carry the ark, and, and six steps is probably eight or, mile, eight or nine miles from Obed-Edom's house, thereabouts. And, and uh, every six steps, maybe every six steps, maybe just one time, but it, whatever the case is, he, he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And they are dancing, and they're dancing and singing just the same as they were. Same as they were when they were doing it wrong. Now they're doing it right. They're dancing and singing. And, they, and, and David is there. David's wearing a linen ephod. Ephod's like a vest. It's a special priestly vest, a linen ephod. So he kind of is wearing this, this priestly garment. He's leading the people uh, in, in all these sacrifices, and he's setting up a new tent for the ark because the old tent had been destroyed. And so he brings it all in, and, and he even blesses the people like the priest would. 
Like in number six, the priest was supposed to bless the people. Well, here it is. David is blessing the people. Now, I don't think that David is acting as a priest. I don't think that's his place. But the way, even the way the writer of First Chronicles or, or the writer of Chronicles pictures it is that David is intertwined with the priesthood. And with the Levites, he's the one directing all the singers, and he's the one directing the worship of God. And that's what we see later on with Solomon, that Solomon is leading the dedication of the temple. I think all of this hints at the fact that one day there is going to be another king. A king who is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. That is, he's going to be a king and a priest. This is fulfilled in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ fulfills the office of prophet because he is the revelation of God to us. Jesus Christ fulfills the office of the priest because he is the one who intercedes for us by his own blood. He is the king. He fulfills the office of king because he is the one who wisely and justly rules over us. Jesus Christ fulfills this whole pattern here. But you can see that there's something wrong. David wants to go and bless his own household. But there's somebody in his household who's not as happy as David is. And it's Michael, who is, the, who is David's wife, but also Saul's daughter. And she sees David, and she despises him in her heart. And when he comes in to bless a household, she says, Oh, how the king honored himself by... Exposing himself, evidently she did not approve of David's gyrations and she thought that when he leaped he might have shown people his underwear. And so you, you're, you're, like one of these, you're like one of these fools, you're like one of these uncouth men who expose themselves. And so you've humiliated yourself. And David says, I wasn't doing it for the female servants. I wasn't doing it so that people would see me. I was doing it for the Lord. And if I have humiliated myself before the Lord, you don't know how humiliating I will be before God. I will humble myself as far as I can go before God. Because God exalted me over your father. Remember who Saul is. Saul is the rejected king of Israel who pridefully disobeyed God's commands who thought he knew better than God's word. That's what, that's what happens in 1 Samuel 15. Saul thinks he knows better than what God had told him to do. And so God rejects him. David says, I was humble, and then God exalted me. And I'll, I'll humble myself even further. I will be even more humiliated before God. You know, you know the, the person who fears God is not afraid to be a fool in front of other people. I don't mean that you should actually be unwise or imprudent. But if you fear God, you don't care what other people think. To, to be, to, to really, I, I, this is what I hope for in my own life, is to so fear God that it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. I don't have to prove myself to anybody. Not, I don't have to justify myself before anybody. That is what we all ought to be hoping for. Let me be so, so enthralled, so reverent before God. Who cares what anybody else says? That's what David's saying. And we see the kind of response that gets blessed and the kind of response that 
gets put down. Obed-Edom, when he has the blessing of God's presence, he is fruitful. Michael, when she despises God's king, she never has children. Her son's not going to sit on the throne. It's not going to be through the house of Saul. The house of Saul that rejected God, that rejected God's word, they're not going to be king. Their house isn't going to continue. I also want you to think about here at the end, what happens at the beginning of chapter 6 and what happens at the end of chapter 6. For a lot of people, those things can't go together. You can't have in the first part of the chapter the presence of God in his holiness killing people. And then at the end of the chapter, you have the presence of God going into Jerusalem and everybody's dancing. I mean, David, I, and I, even, I even kind of left a part there, out there. I, I really want to kind of re- revisit for a second. David, he, all these burnt offerings, so these are acts of devotion to God, of worship to God, and then there are peace offerings. The thing with peace offerings are, is that, that peace offerings are the best portion is offered to God, and then, but, but the person who offers it gets to share in it. So you have this communion of God's people. That's where David gets all the, that's where David gets this portion of meat to distribute to all the people. And we're talking about there is a, a million-person party happening in Jerusalem where David is hosting all of it, and there is this communion between God's people and God. That is what it is to be in the presence of God. So, so how do you have the presence of God and His holiness that kills people at the beginning of the chapter, and then you have the presence of God that is blessing God's people at the end of the people so much that they're, they're jumping and they're leaping and they're dancing and there's abundance and everybody's got something to eat and everybody's got a cake of raisins for dessert. and everybody's, There is abundance in God's presence. There is life in God's presence. There is joy in God's presence. And yet, at the first part of the chapter, he's, he's afraid to be in God's presence. A lot of people think those things can't go together. You can't fear God and have joy in God. You can't be serious and glad at the same time. Again, the Bible says, hey, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to fear God and worship Him with gladness. It's really at the cross that we see how the holiness of the presence of God and the joy in the presence of God can go together. It's at the cross that we see God's anger kindled. Kindled against his own son, Jesus Christ. Not because Jesus Christ sinned, but because of our sin. And the wrath of God broke out on Jesus Christ. The flood of God's anger against sin overwhelmed Jesus Christ. It flooded over him. All of our sin, all of the sin of anybody who would ever trust in Jesus Christ flooded over Jesus Christ. The waters overtook him. The wrath of God poured out on him. God's holiness that cannot tolerate the presence of sin broke out against Jesus Christ. Because of our sin. And yet at that very moment, the veil was torn. This divider 
between God's presence and us was taken away by the death of Jesus Christ. So that we might have live in the presence of God. At the cross of Jesus Christ, we see God's holiness, his presence crush his very own son. And yet we live in the goodness of God's presence because he was crushed for our sins. Jesus Christ, all these blessings that we see that come along with a good and righteous and obedient king, those are ours in Jesus Christ. All the things that we see happen with a a king who speaks blessing over his people and provides them with abundance, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. The wrath of God against our sin that, that broke out and killed Uzzah, that broke out against the enemies of God, against the Philistines, that's all been taken away by the death of Jesus Christ. You're the reason why we have joy in this season and we're singing about Jesus being born and we're, it, it's supposed to be such joy. It's because he is Emmanuel. He is the presence of God with us. He makes it so that God can be with us to bless us because he himself was obedient. He himself died in our place. I hope that you will fear God because God crushed Jesus Christ on the cross. And I hope that you will rejoice in God because God crushed Jesus Christ on the cross. Let's pray. Uh, Father, please grant that we would learn uh, from the example of David uh, both what is good and what is bad. That we would learn to obey your word so that we would, not, we would not lean left or lean right, but that we would stick straight with your word and learn to obey. More than that, grant that our hope would be in the living word, in Jesus Christ. Grant that we would put all of our hope in his kingship, that he would be, when his kingdom comes in its fullness that's our abundance that's our peace that's our righteousness even now he has given us of his spirit even now he is overcoming our corruption and our sin and he has granted that we would be counted in your sight as righteous we praise you and thank you may our hearts uh, leap at the thought that we live in your presence and will live in your presence forevermore. Even you have taken up residence, even with us, even now. Grant that our reverence of you, our fear of you would increase. And in proportion with it, that our joy in you would increase. That we would have, a, we would have serious minds devoted to your word and joyful hearts. Make us a a well-formed people, fully trained in the kingdom of God, so we might honor and worship you forever and ever. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.